The question for the day is what is true greatness? That's our question today for each and every one of us. What is true greatness? And you know, if you ask a hundred different people that question, you'll probably get a hundred different answers, variations of answers. Some people will want to talk about great leaders. Others will want to talk about those who've had the greatest impact on history. No doubt some will simply want to talk about those with the greatest wealth, that's, that's great. That's true greatness or greatest power. Some might even want to talk about the greatest arms, you know, the greatest quarterbacks, the greatest pitchers, those with the greatest physical prowess. That's true greatness. Well, here we are pressing towards the end of Luke chapter 9, and the disciples have both seen and heard from the greatest one who's ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. They have heard his glorious preaching, the preaching of the kingdom of God, and they have seen his glorious divine miracles bursting out all around them so that Peter's even made his great confession that Jesus is the Christ. But they're still confused. They're confused about the true nature of his mission, and their minds are clouded. And, and sadly, their minds are not just clouded, but their minds and hearts are also divided. Because they're not just setting their minds and their hearts upon Christ the Messiah, but they're also setting their minds and their hearts upon fleshly things, earthly things. And this should really disturb us. Because these men are with Jesus they're walking with him. They're closest to the Lord. And if it can happen to them, it can certainly happen to us because what we see at work here is the mother of all sins. Pride. Welling up in their hearts. The sin of pride. And that's why the lessons that Jesus teaches these men, it's so important for us. It should stop us in our tracks because we need to be really honest as we come to the Word of God. As we read about the Gospels and what takes place and the disciples that are with Jesus, we need to realize that, that that's us too. We so easily see ourselves there. We so easily are part of this fallen world given over to pride with divided minds and hearts. But even in the midst of all of this, within the midst of the sinful confusion... Glory, hallelujah, we all have a conception of what is great. We do. Because we're created in the image of God, we long for greatness. And you see, even the fallen world desires greatness, seeks after greatness. It re recognizes great things in fallen men and women and gives them praise for those great things. But you see, both the object of that praise, the worldly praise, and those who praise it, it's flawed and fleeting and distorted because the wages of sin is death. But here's the good news. Not so for Christ and his people. This is the glory of it all. 
The object of our praise as children of God and the Lord Jesus Christ never fades away. His glory never diminishes. His power never diminishes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's the one who was raised from the dead, ascended on high, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, able to transform our lives so that we grow in kingdom greatness as we live humbly by faith in the Holy Spirit and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're hit with today. And these lessons that are hard to hear from the lips of Jesus. So let's hear God's word. Luke chapter 9 verses 43 to 56. Hear the word of the Lord. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about his saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May he write it upon our hearts and souls for all eternity. Well, that brings us to our very first main point this morning. True greatness is empowered by Christ and is his cross alone. True greatness is empowered by Christ and his cross alone. This must be one of the lowest points for the disciples up to this point as they're following Jesus. He's just told them that he's rapidly moving towards his passion and they're arguing about who is the greatest among them. And they don't understand the, the nature of his mission. They, they don't understand that he's come forth as the Lamb of God to save sinners. They think that he's come just to pull down the Romans and to establish an earthly king. But what Jesus teaches them here about the nature of true discipleship, it's fundamental. It's what we need to learn too, that he's the Christ of God. He's the only way of salvation. It's only through his redemptive work and the application of that work that, that anybody can be recreated to give praise to God, to come into the kingdom, to know the, the glory of a changed life and a changed heart, to know true greatness and to follow Jesus. 
You see, what Jesus is showing them is what Paul declared of himself and what is true of every disciple of Christ. We all need a personal confession that must be this. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is what Jesus challenges us all to realize in this passage, to consider the demands of discipleship. The true greatness is a life of humble faith and humble obedience, humbly embracing Christ and living a cross-centered life. It brings us to our knees so that we might follow Christ in true greatness So without Christ, there's no salvation, there's no true greatness, there's no kingdom greatness. But in Christ, at the cross, that's the beginning. That's where we die to self and live in him by the power of his spirit to go forth. And as we come alive to that, we come alive to humility. Humility is the starting point for those who cling to Christ and his cross. And that's the only way that it could be. Because of Adam and his fall into sin that plunged all of us into the brokenness of this human condition, there's only one way up, and that's through Jesus. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So here we see and hear the call of Christ. The call of discipleship. Come to me. Embrace me. Embrace the cross. It's the power for true greatness. Well, that brings us to our second main point this morning. True greatness embraces the path of humility, self-denial, and service. And that's what we see here in verses 46 to 48. What we see is that we need a daily dependency upon Jesus, which is like childlike faith, where we're humbled in our hearts and we cling to him alone. But sadly, what we see is these apostles arguing about which of them is the greatest. And this is crazy. I can't imagine it. But, but it happened over and over again. If you've read the Gospels, you know this isn't the only time that they're going to be arguing about this. I mean, think about it. They even had this same argument as they were traveling to the upper room. And so what did Jesus do when they got there? He washed their feet. And said, if I, your Lord and Master, wash your feet and serve you as a servant, you do likewise. And then even from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, they argued about who was the greatest. Imagine. Jesus is going to that place of pressing where he would sweat drops of blood. And they're arguing about who is the greatest. This seems absurd to us. But it reveals the ever-present reality of the sin of pride, that we have just like these disciples, every day that we wake up, we have an inflated view of ourselves and a diminished view of God, and we must repent and turn away from it. So what does Jesus do, the master teacher, the Savior? Well, he gives words, and then he also gives an object lesson that's beautiful. He takes this child from the fringe, who was seen of no real importance in both the the culture and the conversation because children in that day and age and in that culture, they were lower than slaves. And he brings that child right into the middle 
right next to his side, that place of prominence. And he says, look at the child. If you receive him in my name, you receive me. And if you receive me, you receive my father, he who is least among you. He who will serve is greatest of all. What a picture. What a word. True greatness is illustrated here through this object lesson. That we're to humble ourselves as servants and serve those and receive those that the world views as having no value. That we would go to those who won't give us any social value or economic value, no status for being with them, and we will pour out our lives for them, receive them and serve them and love them and give them what they need just because they have need. True greatness. You know, this goes against the sinful thinking of the fallen world. And that's why Paul hits this so perfectly and beautifully in Philippians chapter 2, which church historians say is the most preached text in the history of the church. We're to follow after Christ. Hear what the Word of God tells us from Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a picture of the greatest servant who calls us to follow him and to embrace the cross and to grow more and more in humility. And when we grow more and more in humility and we look more and more to the Lord Jesus Christ, we will grow more and more in self-denial. We'll be about that spiritual battle of putting off the old, the old man and the old appetites and the old ways and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ by choking out sin and filling up our lives and hearts upon the promises of God. You know, it's interesting. I think somebody told the internet that I'm getting a little pudgy. I don't know how they know this, but I keep getting emails about intermittent fasting. And it sounds like a pretty... Good weight loss plan. I think it's more than a fad because this is the deal. If you starve yourself, you'll lose weight. Who would have thought, right? And it goes like this. You know, there are 24 hours in the day, so you will fast for at least 20 of those, and then you can gorge yourself for four hours, and you'll lose weight. But you see, in Christ, we're not called to intermittent fasting from sin. But we're called to put it to death, to starve pride, and to grow in humility. And as we do that, we're reminded more and more that we are no longer slaves of sin, but we are free men and free women in Christ, saved and loved and received and forgiven. 
So let's examine our hearts and identify the areas where we have clung to our own desires and, and surrender them up to God and seek His face and call upon the Lord to give us a spirit that we would grow in humility, embracing Christ and His calling. Because as we do that, Individually and collectively, we will grow more and more in the image of Jesus as servants. You know, every Christian is a deacon. All of us are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that we must receive others, especially the least, the young, the weak, the ignored, the despised, the marginalized, we must receive them and love them and serve them, first in the household of faith and then out there, upon, uh, uh, you know, outside the walls of the church, wherever we may find ourselves, wherever we live, wherever we work, wherever we play. But the reality is you can't do this unless you've been served by the greatest servant. If the suffering servant who is the greatest has not served you individually, then you can't become a true servant because you won't have the right motives or the right power to do it. You know, I wonder collectively how many times all of us have heard this phrase because we live in Fayette County and the surrounding area. It's my pleasure to serve you. You know, if you cut me, I bleed chicken. I grew up eating Chick-fil-A. It's my pleasure to serve you. But, you know, they have to say that. It's part of their job. I'm sure a lot of them mean it, but that's part of it. They have to say it because it's part of their job. And a lot of times the motivation behind that service is because it's a job with demands and rules and expectations so that motives are motivated by mandates. Like if you don't do this, you get fired. But you see, when it comes... To following the greatest one, becoming a servant like him. He serves us by his love and transforms our hearts so that we have the right motive and we have the right power so that we can really and truly say, it's my pleasure to serve you. It's kingdom power. And as we grow as disciples, we grow in that attitude and action as we look to Jesus, the one who's constantly serving us perfectly. You know, Chick-fil-A also has this wonderful thing. They talk about second-mile service. You'd think I'd work for the company. Second-mile service, it's a great thing in business, right? It's giving your customers more than they expect. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Going above and beyond. Well, you know, Jesus Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. So I wonder, what do you call that kind of service? What's that? I recently read an article about the world's most dangerous roads. And one of the most dangerous is in Brazil. And it's actually called the Rodovia de Morte, the highway of death. Who in the world would drive on the highway of death? But you know, that's the road that Jesus took for us in Christ to serve us, traveling all the way from, from heaven to earth to hell, 
to go to the cross, to suffer and die for our sins, to take all of God the Father's perfect wrath against ungodliness and remove it and save us? Nobody's ever served anybody like Jesus has served you and me. Nobody will ever serve you like Jesus has served his bride. And when we get that into our heads and into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we will deny self, we will embrace the cross, we will become more humble and we will serve. That's the gospel power. So kingdom greatness in Christ, it embraces serving others, serving others out of living faith so that we feed upon Christ and our hearts are nourished. Do you realize that you don't just nourish your heart and soul when you read God's word, but also when you do God's word? That's what Jesus said when the the men came back from finding food, you know, to that Samaritan village, and there was Jesus talking to that woman at the well. And they're like, Jesus, we got food. That's why we left. Come on, eat some food. And what does he say? I have food to eat that you know not. The food I eat is to do the will of my heavenly Father. When you do God's word, you feed your soul. You're nourished. So let's actively seek opportunities to love and serve others and to display kindness, compassion, generosity. So how are we going to show this tangibly? How can we show this receiving love tangibly? Well, think about it. Jesus received us and brought us into his family and gave us table fellowship and the joys of friendship and fellowship. So that's a great way to do it, to receive others and bring them into your family and show them friendship and fellowship. You know, one of the greatest examples of this humble service and love received was experienced by Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. That's a cool name, don't you think? Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. She was a committed lesbian who absolutely rejected Christianity, but she had a problem. She had a pesky neighbor who loved the Lord, a pastor. And he and his wife just kept inviting her over and inviting her over and serving her meals and enjoying fellowship with her. And you know what happens when people eat and drink together and hang out together? Well, they become friends. And then before you know it, they were talking about deep things, gospel things, heart things. And God used that fellowship, that receiving to melt her hard heart, and she came in to Christ. And today she's a pastor's wife, I believe, living in North Carolina, doing wonderful things. But you know what? Such relationships, they almost never come about through aggressive force. But God's mysterious providential workings brings them about. So I ask the question for you and I, brothers and sisters, will we be willing and able and ready to make the most of them in love? When something wild like that happens in our lives and we have the opportunity to receive and show hospitality. Well, what we see on the news and in the streets in this so-called culture war that we're in the midst of, you know, this isn't where we really live. 
It's happening out there, and we got the wages of spin going on with the news. It's bad. I get that. But the stuff of life is taking place in your neighborhoods, in your backyard, at the pool, at your kids' sporting events, at your workplace where you go to work with the same people for maybe 10 or 20 years. And that's where the action is. That's where you can receive and serve and love. And God does amazing things when we show love and hospitality. And to do this, brothers and sisters, we must resist the temptation of worldly recognition, power, and factionalism. And that's our next thought this morning. True greatness resists the temptation of worldly recognition, power, and factionalism. And that's what we see in verses 49 and 50 as these stories just unfold one after the next. So first, Jesus confronts them with their their sinful ambition and pride. And now, he confronts them with their narrow-minded factionalism. That anyone following Jesus must recognize their authority, their power. Because they see themselves as the gatekeepers of all things Jesus. So in two verses, we hear the story. The disciples are out. They, They see this guy casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And they try to stop him. You know, he's not with us. He can't do that. And Jesus says, don't stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. You know, unfortunately, this passage has been used in so many ways, twisted, to somehow suggest that that theology doesn't matter. You know, that, that there should never be any breaking of unity over doctrine. And that's not the case. Because there are the essential truths of the Christian faith, the core elements of salvation that we absolutely must break over. People deny that Jesus is not the Son of God or there is no resurrection. They're not part of the Christian fellowship. But you see, Jesus is not talking about this here. He's not dealing with core essential truths of the Christian faith. What he's dealing with is the disciples' sin of of factionalism and a party spirit. Rejecting others because they're not coming in under their authority and doing it their way. Don't we see this plaguing the church even today? It really is all around. I mean, at the the larger level, denominational dominance, and at a smaller level, and, and cliques in the church, battling parachurch organizations, even small group cliques where there's factionalism, where there's a narrow-mindedness. You know, when I entered into ministry, I had a, a pastor buddy of mine say, you know, Tim, some of the biggest dumpster fires in the church will be started in a small group. And I was like, no way. Small group, they're small. Nothing bad happens there, right? But you only need two Christians to start a dumpster fire, right? So we need to see the reality of this. The church is plagued by this sin, factionalism, a party spirit. See, kingdom greatness in Christ resists the temptation of worldly recognition that feeds the flesh, that seeks for power and recognition through division. So I ask us all, brothers and sisters, let's examine our hearts and our motives and resist the allure of seeking recognition from others and resist the temptation to battle over things that don't 
even matter in the big picture. We do take doctrine seriously here at Carriage Lane, and we should. But we need to be careful to not disparage other Christ-exalting, Bible-preaching churches who might have some differences with us that don't matter to salvation or the church or eternity. You know, when Rome was on fire because of Nero persecuting the church, burning the city, the oneness of the body of Christ and the confession that Jesus is Lord, that's what really mattered. Nothing else. Well, that brings us to our final thought this morning that we see in verses 51 to 56. True greatness responds to rejection with mercy. True greatness responds to rejection with mercy. So here we see James and John, the sons of thunder, and their words really do expose what is in their hearts. It's pretty scary, isn't it? Instead of being so filled with the experience of God's grace and mercy poured out upon them and the gift of Christ, the greatest one, their Savior right there with them, they want to call down fire and be agents of the law without gospel. You see, what's happening is Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He has to go through the Samaritan village. He's headed to the cross, sends word to go forth, And they hear that a Jew who is the Messiah is headed to Jerusalem and they reject him and they don't receive him. And uh, this absolutely fires up James and John. And we have to remember the story about why the Samaritans are who they are and why the Jews don't like them, why they don't like each other. You see, the Samaritans didn't believe that Jerusalem was the place for right worship. They believed that was Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal in the north. And we have to go all the way back to the exile to understand where they came from and why it's such a big deal. So when God handed his people over to the Assyrians and the Babylonians for their sin and their rebellion, the curse of exile, they were ripped out of the land. Those who were left behind were the least, the poor, the nobodies, who were just there to tend the crops. And during this time of exile, they intermarried with pagan peoples around them. And from that point on, they were despised by the Jews as traitors and impure. There's bigotry here. There's hatred here for them. And the Samaritans were treated harshly by the Jews, and they didn't like them. The feeling was mutual. And so when they found out Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, a Jew, it makes sense that they would reject them. So here's the sons of thunder. They want to do exactly what Elijah did to the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and call down fire. Just nuke them, Lord. Feel so good if we could just nuke them. But you see, again, they misunderstand Jesus' messianic mission. Here is the Lamb of God at his first appearing, going forth to the cross, love personified to save sinners. He came to serve. He came to receive. He came to endure hell to bring treasure into the kingdom, his people. It's only at Christ's second coming that he is the Lion of Judah and brings judgment upon those who 
are faithless. That's when wrath comes forth. But think about it. Who knows more about hell and the reality of it than Jesus? And he is here to save people from experiencing that by going through it himself. So Jesus turns and rebukes them. So what about us? You think this can't happen to us? That we would have such an attitude? Can't we see ourselves in James and John? You know, we often want judgment for others who reject us and offend us. But we want grace and mercy for ourselves. Isn't that human nature? But of course we all deserve God's judgment. We're all sinners. So we who have tasted the sweetness of Christ and the glory of God's grace poured out upon us through Jesus. May we never find ourselves in such a place. We must be about extending mercy because we've experienced mercy. We must be about extending love because we've experienced the greatest love. You see, kingdom greatness perseveres in the face of opposition because of the power of God's love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit sealing us to Christ and Christ to us. So brothers and sisters, as we come to a conclusion here, we must recognize the demands of true discipleship that Christ lays upon us from the word of the Lord. And we must see that the only way that we can be true disciples is we must first be served by the Savior, the greatest one, who has the greatest power, And through the glory of the gospel, we can be made new, not once, not twice, but day by day, moment by moment, as we walk with him, as we look to him, as we receive him, as we rest in him, we must look more and more like him in this world. And as we follow along in the path of Jesus, holding fast to him by faith in the Spirit, We look more like kingdom greatness. And our lives become more and more gospel attractive to the world around us. And yes, like a moth driven or drawn to the light, some will want to destroy us and hate us for it. But in love we must show mercy and others will be drawn to us and they'll want to hear about it. So we open our mouths and we speak. We lift high Christ with our words and with our lives. And looking to Jesus glory of our Savior, we're transformed. May that be our prayer today and every day, that we would shine more and more, that we would be on the path of growing in kingdom greatness. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Almighty, we thank you for salvation. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've shown us the glory of your ministry you came forth as a servant to seek and to save the lost and to serve people like us who hated you, rejected you, ran from you, despised you, and yet you overcame our hearts, our hardness, our pride, and you went all the way to the cross, all the way to the grave, and glory, hallelujah, resurrected forevermore and ascended on high. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would intercede for us here at Carriage Lane Presbyterian Church. 
that you would ask the Father to send forth more of the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit, that we would be transformed even now, that our lives, not just today, but tomorrow, would be a sermon to the watching world of what it means to humbly follow the Savior and to grow in kingdom greatness to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen.